um, about an important topic, obviously, when it comes to each and every believer, uh, when it comes to where we stand with the Lord. And a lot of this message, and you know, we also uh, have Pastor Steve, he's getting a lot better. He had asked me after preaching on Sunday if I would come back and preach on Wednesday because he's trying to make sure his health's completely right so he can be ready, hopefully, to preach this Sunday. And um, so I was like, any chance I get to share the God's word, I'm going to be able, I'm going to do it, you know. And so blessed to be here and, and share this. And I had already told him, yes, that I would. And on Monday night, uh, I have a Bible study, a discipleship group, and we've been having a number of the guys uh, at the group share, and I had them pretty much write a Bible commentary, uh, not in depth, but a Bible commentary on different epistles in the New Testament, and then come and present it, explaining not only what the genre of the book was, who wrote it, when they wrote it, um, and, and so forth, and then kind of give kind of a, a chronological uh, order of what is being written and what is being said and different arguments um, that are being made. And so we were going through that as a, as a study group. We were going, a lot of the guys giving their presentations, and I, I received a text on Monday while Josiah was sharing from James, and I absolutely love James. They call that book the Proverbs of the New Testament. It was written by Jesus' brother, and that book is absolutely just incredible. And Josiah was going through that, and my attention was taking off a little bit because my mom texted me that my grandma Helen had passed away. And uh, my grandma Helen, my great-grandma Helen, was 102 years old. And I absolutely loved my, loved her. I loved my great-grandma Helen. She was an amazing, amazing woman of God. And so I was able to share this story, and I'll share it with you guys here. I shared this on my own personal Facebook page because it was the first thing that just kind of went through and, you know, teaching a Bible study. And I knew that Josiah and uh, Nico is another young man who was going to be sharing, um, and Anthony at the time, I knew they were going to be sharing, and I knew they had poured into there, so I didn't really let my emotions get to me. I wasn't going to tell them anything was going on, because I wanted to listen to their presentation of God's Word. And so, as we're going through that, then my emotions kind of got the better of me uh, somewhat afterwards, thinking about my grandma, because my great-grandma Helen, she had... She was an amazing woman, and if you met her, she probably told you a couple of things. One of them was that she was ready to meet Jesus. Anytime you talked to her, she was like, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to meet Jesus, even though for many of the years of her later in life, she was very active, not only in her church, but uh, she was still driving until she was about 100. I mean, just (laughs) incredible. I don't know how well, but she was driving, and they finally took her car from her, (laughs) but nonetheless... Um, I love that woman, and when I was four years old, and I got to share this with her at her 102nd birthday uh, just last year, we would have been celebrating her 103rd on the 6th, and I shared this story with her because it was impactful to me and how she was impactful in my life, because my grandma, when I was four years old, my parents, uh, it was just me and my older brother, I now have four other siblings, but at the time it was just me and my older brother, and we were living in Lancaster, and my grandma found out that her grandson, my great-grandma, found out that her grandson had a, had a, had a new house that he bought, and they were getting new beds for the kids, and so she was going to bring over a mattress and these little eggshell things to make it comfortable for us to lay on. But she had something else in mind. When she came over that, that day, she was going to teach my brother and myself how we are to pray before we go to bed. And she did. She taught us that. And she shared the love of Jesus with us. And I could tell you honestly, from that age, at four years old, until I probably my sophomore year in high school, my brother and I, we always shared a room. And then my oldest brother, who we adopted, would also later share that room with us. We would say that prayer that she taught us every single night, just a a prayer that God uh, would guide us. And it was not until I became rebellious and really unbelieving, not only in the way that I live my life, but eventually becoming an atheist, agnostic, uh, it was not until then that I stopped praying that prayer that I prayed as a child. And I told her that. And I told her that story, but one of the cool things was is that 
I would later give my life to Christ after, as, uh, after watching this older soul so rock and roll. I gave my life to Christ and started coming to Blessed Hope Chapel, started being discipled by Pastor Joe here, and started growing in the Lord. And a lot of my family up north had heard about me coming to faith, and my great-grandma heard that I had come to faith. So when I went up to visit, my great-grandma uh, was so excited to see me. And uh, she walked up, and she handed me uh, J. Vernon McGee's Through the Bible. And she literally walked past, and I don't want to embarrass anyone, but she walked past one of my relatives and said, I was going to give it to him, but he turned into a heathen. You know, some reason when you get older, the filter begins to leave and, and not be there. But nonetheless, my, my grandma um, wanted me to have that because she said, I know you're really getting into the word of God and I want you to have this with somebody I really loved and, and cherished. And it was something that's a blessing. And if you guys watch anything on the Good Fight Ministry Studios, I keep that in our studio shot. You can see it, it's on my side, uh, that same commentary, my first Bible commentary I ever had. And many you know, you know, years passed and I got to tell her that, that story of her teaching me those prayers because she would always say she wanted to be with Jesus, but one of the things that I wanted to express to her was that maybe she had one more person she was supposed to teach to pray, just as she did me. And I'm so, I'm so excited, I, I'm, I mean, obviously going through a number of emotions, so excited that even though she passed, it is so amazing to be able to, without a shadow of a doubt, know where she is, know that she's in the presence of Jesus. To know that, to have confidence in that, to be absent in the body, to be present with the Lord, to have confidence in where she is. And it's something that I've thought a lot about for other people. Because sadly, there are far too many people that when somebody gives a eulogy, a lot of times the people up there are lying about them. I hope that the pastors aren't lying, but I can tell you, uh, I remember going to a couple different funerals when I, when I first came to the Lord, and I had two of my old friends that I used to party with that died. And I remember one, it was an amazing ceremony. Um, I mean, hundreds of my friends that were non-believers were there, and a, a clear presentation of the gospel was given at a funeral for somebody who was not a believer, and they never acted like he was. And then later, I remember going to another funeral, and at that funeral, I'll never forget these words because they were embedded in my heart because I was so excited for the previous thing that took place because the Bible's very clear in the book of Ecclesiastes. It says that it's better to be in a place of mourning than in a place of feasting because guess what? You're going to remember that there is an end to this life. And so I was praising God that, okay, it's sad, I'm brokenhearted that my friend has passed away, but once again, I'm going to be able to have people there that are not saved come into a church and hear the gospel. But sadly, I remember going to that funeral and my friend who had passed away was drunk driving, leaving a bar, going to a woman's house who was not his wife and died on the side of the road. And I listened to this pastor go up there and instead of uh, presenting a gospel message said, if you want to see this person again, you need to love like they loved. And it broke my heart. I said, you need to love like Jesus loved. You need to actually follow Jesus and know Jesus. That's no gospel message. You just help these people solidify their own wickedness. We don't get graded on a curve. We get graded on a cross, and each and every one of us have failed. And so I was looking at the scriptures a lot, and, and I've been reading and meditating on quite a few different scriptures, it's not only since Monday, but it's something that we should always be doing. And there were a number of texts that just kind of were, were coming at me that I was reading, and they were just embedded on my heart this week. And something, these questions that I've been thinking about, these questions I've been thinking about for a lot of my brothers and sisters in Christ, and the question I kept thinking about, especially after reading 2 Timothy chapter 4, was what kind of a living eulogy, what kind of a living eulogy would you be able to give right now? 
You know, there is something to testing our faith. That's something that Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, that we need to test ourselves, examine ourselves to see if we are really in the faith. There is something to looking at yourself and making assessments saying, Lord, how can I better serve you? How can I be more fruitful? I don't want to be like the branch that gets cut off in John chapter 15. I don't want to be the branch that's cut off in Romans chapter 11 because of unbelief. I want to make sure that I'm following you. And if I'm here today and I'm alive and I have breath in my lungs and I recognize that you hold my breath that is in my lungs, you hold my life and you are the only reason I'm alive, I should be able to make an assessment and say, God, what sort of life am I living and what sort of living eulogy could I write? Because in the scriptures, both Paul and Peter give us a living eulogy. Both Paul and Peter talk about them being ready to die. And I was thinking about this quite often because the fact is, is that when it comes to passing away, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 14 says this, but we, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, those who have already passed away, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And now that is a text that is a clear text concerning the rapture. And I absolutely love that text, especially if you're post-trib, you can actually understand what that text is in context. But that's not the part that I want to focus on tonight. That idea of understanding that we do grieve. We do recognize that Guess what? There is sadness. Even Paul talked about it when he said that we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. There are times of sadness as a believer when you lose someone, but I don't want to grieve like the world does. And if you are writing a eulogy for your own life, I don't want you to have to grieve while writing it. I don't want you to be able to be looking at your life right now and say, what would I write? What would I write today? I want to have confidence in every single person that passes. I want to have that confidence, and that confidence comes from knowing that they know Jesus. And it's something that should be embedded in our heart, an understanding that we have Christ who is our hope. As Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1 in his greeting, Christ who is our hope. We have a fixed hope that doesn't move. When Joe was going through the health stuff recently, and I thought there was a chance that he might pass away, it wasn't that I was like, oh no, where's he going to go if he passes? For me, I was, so, I was so just thinking about, praise God that he gives us assurance, and I understand what would happen if he did pass. That in the worst case scenario for me, as somebody who's being discipled by him, as him as my pastor, the worst case scenario is that he goes into the presence of Jesus. That's the worst case scenario right now. But guess what? I know that I would be sad because I wouldn't be able to be discipled by him anymore and I've been growing from him and learning from him for all these years, my entire walk with Christ. So yes, I, I would have been sorrowful, but yet rejoicing because of that fixed hope, because I do not grieve as someone who has no hope. And I talked to my father yesterday and I expressed something to him about somebody and I said, hey, you need to go and express this truth to them. We don't want to be sitting at your funeral just hoping. The Bible says love hopes all things. We don't want to be sitting at this person's funeral wondering, please, that they repent before they died, please. I don't want to be sitting there wondering that. It's one of the worst situations ever, and I've been in that exact position with one of my best friends who passed away. Wondering, wow, Lord, did they repent? I don't want to be put in those positions. And we as brothers and sisters in Christ are given a couple of different things. 
We're told very clearly in the scriptures, in Hebrews chapter 3, specifically in verses 12 through 14, when it says part of our job as brothers in Christ is to make sure that we look and see and recognize if someone has a sinful, unbelieving heart that is falling away from the living God, that we do something about it when we see that. So when I think of a living eulogy that you could write right now, if I have somebody in my life right now that I would not, or I would know it's probably not looking too hot. There's no assurance right now for them. What am I doing to make sure that they don't go on past this world and I have no assurance that they are actually with Jesus? How can I do something to fix that? Let's say this. If you are someone right now that knows Jesus, who would you If you knew that you were going to die, you knew that you were going to pass, you knew that this was the end, who would you write your living eulogy to and what would you say to them? How would you beg them to come to Christ, to be reconciled to God? What would you say to them? Please, this is true. The gospel is true. Jesus really died. Jesus really rose from the dead. Who would you say it to? And maybe if you're sitting there right now, you're thinking about somebody, say it to them now before it's too late. Say it to them right now. Don't just talk about your life and what Jesus has done for you, but tell them what Jesus has done for them. Tell them about what Jesus did on that cross when he died that horrible death and said those words to Telestai paid in full. My Jesus is so good and I can have that fixed and full hope in him because he is my hope. And if you had this eulogy to write, what would you write down? What could you write down of yourself, of your own walk right now? And this is not only to bring conviction, but also a recognition that guess what? If you haven't been walking with Christ, why is today not the day that you turn? If you haven't been actually looking at the Great Commission and fulfilling it, why isn't today the day that you would go out and do it? If you have been looking at pornography, if you have been cheating on your wife, if you've been doing horrible things, you've been getting drunk on the weekends, maybe you're having a little too much. If you have bitterness wrapped up in your heart, why not, why not today be the time where you say, I'm going to get rid of it right now. Let the Holy Spirit work in a radical way in your life. Go back to God's word. Let his word, let the Holy Spirit sanctify you and say, I'm going to change so that guess what? How many, I'm telling you right now, 144,000 people die every day, COVID or non-COVID. About 144,000, somewhere around in that ballpark. Most of them thought they had time tomorrow to do something. Many of them thought, yeah, tomorrow I'll, I'll I'll fix that, I'll do that. You have no idea when your day, that fixed day ends. You have no idea when that happens. This is why the psalmist said, teach me to number my way and number my days. (laughs) It's a recognition It's a realization that we have one shot at this. We get one chance here on this earth to impact people. What are you going to do? How are you going to share with people? How are you going to follow Jesus Christ? What would be your eulogy? What would you write about yourself? You know, something I was thinking about quite often is how Satan will distract, how the enemy will distract, how the flesh will distract us over and over again. And there's something called an immortality project that quite a few non-believers put themselves into. You see, because we have a fixed hope. We have a fixed hope that not only do we have a fixed hope because of who Jesus is, but the Bible actually says in in Hebrews chapter 11 that our faith is not a blind faith that we say, well, I hope it's all true, but our faith is two things, substance and evidence. That is what our faith is. And so when I look at that and I recognize that my faith is substance and evidence and I recognize that God became a man, stepped into time, Christianity is not a philosophy that you follow. Christianity specifically is a person in Jesus Christ who we follow. And when I see that my faith is substance and evidence, when I see and recognize that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when made mention of the resurrection, when made mention not only of the resurrection that Jesus Christ did in front of over 500 different people, 
I also see right after that when making the case for the resurrection that is to come, the one where we will all be resurrected, the just and the unjust alike, and they will then be judged, I see that Paul puts specifically a time, space, a time and space where God became a man and died a death on a cross and rose again on the third day, and he said, if this resurrection did not happen, our faith, my preaching, it's all in vain. He put all the weight of his case on an event that actually took place, not on a philosophy, but on an event that actually took place, the death of Jesus. And so we have quite clearly faith that is accompanied with substance and evidence. So often people go into these immortality projects where they try to figure out ways to extend their lifetime, whether that be here on earth or the hereafter. And so what happens and what takes place is idolatry. And so this can happen in a number of ways. In fact, rich people right now in Silicon Valley are spending millions of dollars Millions of dollars in things like cryogenics and other, and other avenues in order to make eternity on this earth right now that hopefully if they cryogenically freeze their bodies, then one day they will be able to live forever. That's their eternality. That's them attempting their immortality. And guess what? <laughs> it's not going to work. And also... Something I found really interesting when it came to this whole uh, cryogenic freezing, a sad story happened. I've, I've been a baseball fan since I was a little kid, and the, what most people, who most people call the greatest hitter of all time was a Boston Red Sox named Ted Williams. In fact, to this day, he is the last man to hit 400 as an average, and he was an incredible baseball player, but... There was a big uproar that happened when he passed away with his own family, some of the insurrection that took place because he wanted to be cryogenically frozen, according to his son. (coughs) Excuse me. According to his son, he wanted to be cryogenically frozen, and his daughter disagreed. But they cut his head off, and then his body went one way, his head went to the other, and it went to this company called Alcor. And at that company, Alcor... Sadly enough, somebody, not only, it cost them $136,000 to do this, by the way, hoping that one day science will come and they'll fix him and then he'll be able to be, he'll be able to go play baseball again, okay? And then what happened was, is the head of Ted Williams, they took and actually played baseball with it. The people at the cryogenic place took and played baseball with his head and steel pipes, fracturing the skull. And the only reason we found out is because somebody who worked there actually brought a mic and, and snuck in there. And that's what he was hoping, that, hey, if I spend this $136,000, which, by the way, Alcor says they owe, they owe another $111,000, that one day they'll unfreeze him when science is ready and they'll bring him back and he'll be immortal. Another way that this is done is atheists will promise that if I write these books, they think if they write these books, I'll be immortal because people have these books of me that I've written. And so now I'll be able to reshape culture. Far too many people are getting right now, well, it doesn't matter, name your, name your pet project of the month and whether it's the Save the Whales project or Save the Trees project or BLM or whatever you want to put it on, and this is where they place their hope. If they can reshape culture, this is a means for them to be able to tell their kids one day, their grandkids, or many of them probably won't have children, so maybe some friends' kids or something, that look at what I did at this time and remember my legacy. Far too often, the legacy that people want to leave is an idol of worship. They want to make sure that one day their legacy will go on. And guess what? This doesn't even stop there. It actually moves on into the children. In fact, even Albert Einstein, when trying to figure out a way to continue in immortality, he said, we do it through our children. We do it through our children. Over and over again, what you have is men 
doing exactly what Jeremiah spoke about, the sins that they committed, the sin of taking broken cisterns that do not hold water and trading them, getting those instead of streams of living water that God offers. That's exactly what happens with all of these immortality projects. We have faith with substance and evidence. We are able to know that we have eternal life. We're able to know Jesus in a personal way. And they have their little pet projects. Maybe my kids one day. This will be how I, ha- I make sure that I ex- go on in existence. And then you have four daughters or something. I don't know. You, you lose your, your name. Whatever it is. But these are all idols. They're all means of getting away from the one true God. They're all ways, even living these legacies, are all ways in order to trade what could be theirs, the hope that could be theirs. Jesus Christ, fixed hope that doesn't move, the resurrected king, and they trade it to write books. They trade it in hopes to finding value in the next life and so forth. It's, it's, it's heartbreaking to me. And this is something that I've thought about a lot and this verse is very powerful in Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews chapter 11 verse 13 it says, all these died in the faith. Who are these? Hebrews chapter 11 is the hall of faith chapter. Hebrews chapter 11 where we look at the Old Testament saints and the radical things that they did. And here's what it says. All these died in the faith. That's going to be really important. All these died in the faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on this earth. That is our calling. We're supposed to be aliens here. We are not supposed to look at this world for our hope. All of the degrading passions, all of the lusts of of this world, we are supposed to look at it and say, none of this is for me. None of it. When we leave this earth, I know where I'm going. I will actually be home. I'm just visiting here. I know that I'm just a passerby. That's all I am. That we come here and recognize that we should be strangers to this earth. That we should be strangers to the world. That they look at us and malign and marvel at the walk that we have with Christ. Let yourselves continue to be a letter to this world, not written on stone, but written on the hearts of men as they see you loving your king, as they see you serving your king, as you shine with righteousness as you have the breastplate on, as you look forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, as you have the helmet of salvation on, as you walk in your gospel shoes, as you have on the belt of truth, and as you have the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. We have these things. God has granted to us everything concerning life and godliness, and we walk in them, and we look back at what our Old Testament brothers and sisters in Christ did in a powerful way and say, you know what, Lord, do that through me. Be as Isaiah did in Isaiah chapter 6. Lord, here I am. Send me. I want to live a life for you. I don't want to wait for tomorrow. I want to do it today. So we look at them. Remember, they died in the faith. They were not those who looked back. They were not those who stopped their grinding at the plow, but they continued to look. They suffered for their faith over and over again. He gives us a radical view of so many different Old Testament saints and the things that they suffered. If all you got out of this study is I should go read Hebrews 11, I'd done enough tonight. Because Hebrews 11 is so powerful, is so amazing when you look at that and you say, Lord, whatever I'm going through right now, that's, it's nothing compared to what you've written right here about the Old Testament saints. And then when he connects it in Hebrews chapter 12, when he says we have this great, cloud of, uh, this great crowd of witnesses looking at us, watching us, now let us lay aside every sin and the encumbrance so that we can run our way a race with endurance. 
Now, I want to point that out, and I, I don't have this on my notes, but this is what happens. I want to point this out because a lot of people don't realize there are things in their life when it comes to walking with Christ, that there are things that are sins and there are also things that are encumbrances. There are things that are hindering you from running your race with endurance that aren't necessarily just sin. There are things that are encumbrance. I, 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 I speak of this quite often. It's a sports reference and I've, I've always been, you know, wrestling coach and, you know, been into sports a little bit here and there. But I think about this a lot because when you watch sprinters, even to this day, and if you saw a sprinter walk out and get ready to go running, and all of a sudden he's throwing on layers of clothes and a helmet and all this heavy stuff, you'd be like, what are you doing? There's no chance that you're going to run, you're going to win this race. There's absolutely no shot. What are you doing? Maybe Usain Bolt when he was at his height of his, of his uh, achievements there, but what are you doing putting on all this extra weight to go run? You look ridiculous. You're never going to win. But then nowadays, you look at them, I mean, you know, they almost look naked out there, but, but they have like no weight. Grab a, grab a running shoe. It is the lightest thing ever for those sprinters. And the whole reason is so that they can run their race as fast as they possibly can, not being held back and held down by anything. Not just the sin. The sin is one thing. You need to repent and turn from it. But those encumbrances, those things in your life that are hindering you from following Christ and loving him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, what is it? Point it out and say, why do I need this? How is this helping me in my walk with Christ? I need to get rid of it. How can I I write a living eulogy that absolutely brings glory to the Lord? How can I do it if I'm letting these things drag me down? There is nothing more important and C.T. Studd is my favorite poet and missionary of all time. I've probably read five, six biographies on C.T. Studd. He was a famous cricket player. They still, to this day, play the Ashes, which is Australia versus England. And no, I have no idea how the scoring works in cricket. Those numbers are way too high for me to calculate. I don't get it. But in cricket, they still have a poem on what's called the urn. And the urn, they've been, they've been doing this well over 100 years now. And the urn has a poem on it which contains C.T. Studd and his brother's name on it. Still to this day, over 100 years later. And this man was rich and rich and, and had all this money. And then his dad is the reason he had all the money. His dad converted to Christ. And then his goal switched from being a rich you know, man in England with his sons being the best cricket players in the world, some of the best cricket players in the world, it switched over to, I just want my family to know Christ to the point that he, all he did was bring missionaries in to share the gospel with his children until they finally came to the Lord, all of them privately through a man that they all made fun of. And then later, after CT actually fell away from the Lord for a while, came back with a fervor. And he said, he said in his poem, only one life, and it is one of the most powerful statements, and I will tell you this right now, that poem I read as a brand new believer, and it changed my walk with Christ, these words, and it says, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last, and when I am dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life was burned out for thee. He recognized quite clearly, quite clearly he recognized that the only thing that will matter at the end of the day is what we've done for the Jesus that died for us. And that stuck out to me. But I wanted to point out here in Hebrews 11, let me go back here. In Hebrews 11, they died in the faith. They didn't shipwreck their faith. They didn't fall away and let their hearts be taken away by the deceitfulness of sin. They died in the faith, trusting in Jesus. You know, King Asa is, is a sad figure to me. I believe he reigned about 41 years. And for much of that, I believe 35 of those years, he led reform. He threw out the Asherah poles. I mean, he did some radical things to the Lord, followed the Lord with his heart, it says. But then towards the end of his life, he stopped trusting in the Lord. He started persecuting people, including prophets that would come and speak to him. And he didn't finish the race right. He didn't continue with endurance. He didn't lay aside those things. And he died literally because of foot disease because he didn't seek the Lord. 
in the end. And it's a sad, sad story. And I think about this in the book of Revelation to the church of Ephesus in chapter two. It says, notice, uh, I'm sorry, (laughs) I'm looking at my notes. He says, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil. He's commending the church in Ephesus for what they're doing. You cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Well, if I stop right there, everything sounds pretty good. But he keeps going. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the things you did at first or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of his place unless you repent. Guys, we don't want to be these people. We do not want to be someone that God says, I'm going to remove my lampstand because you've totally forgotten about me. Even though it's really great that you may have some discernment in these areas, you're calling out these sinners, but you've left your first love. You know, I remember talking with someone once again, when I was a new believer, but I remember talking to someone about convictions and it was specifically about music. And this is before I ever heard who Bethel was or Elevation Worship or Hillsong, really. I didn't really know much about any of them or especially their doctrine at the time. But, you know, I just noticed, and Elevation wasn't really big at the time anyways, but I just noticed, and I said this to the person I was talking with, I said, you know, I, I just have a real tough time listening to this music where I can't tell if the dude's talking about his girlfriend or Jesus. It just makes me uncomfortable. And so I try to listen to music that when I'm listening to it, I know I am deep and I'm in, enveloped in worship. That's what I care about. That's all I want to listen to. And that, those were the conviction that I held. And I remember hearing those, those, those famous words. Oh, I used to be like that. But now I realize God can speak to me through secular music. And I'm like, well, God can speak to a donkey, but I'm not asking Eeyore for advice, okay? I'm gonna, I'm gonna go and make sure if what I'm doing is following the Lord. I'm gonna go and make sure what I'm doing is glorifying to him. I don't wanna listen to the songs of fools, as Ecclesiastes says. I wanna listen to things that glorify the Lord. That's what I care about. And I've talked to people. I remember opening up my Bible at a, on an airplane and someone's like, oh, I read that once. I'm like, you read that once? Why'd you stop? Why'd you stop? I remember when I did these things for the Lord. Well, why aren't you continuing in them? What is stopping you from being more and more sanctified? It's you not digging in the word. I'll tell you that right now. What we should, what we should say is, Lord, I want the end of my life to be more on fire than the beginning. We should not come to a place in our walk with Christ where we go, well, I remember when I used to be on fire for the Lord. I remember when I used to follow him. I remember when I used to read the word. I remember when I was so excited to share the gospel. Well, we'll do something now. Don't wait. Do it today. Go text someone. I don't care if it's late. Tell someone you need Jesus. I remember... When that movie God's Not Dead came out, and then I think the second one got kind of weird social justice stuff. But anyways, I remember when, when that movie God's Not Dead came out, I got so many text messages from people because at the end of the movie they asked, send a text message to say God's not dead. Just send it to somebody. And it was a means to say go share with somebody about the God we serve. And I was like, that's actually a great idea. How hard is that to do? I mean, honestly, People are, we should not be embarrassed about our king and we should not get to a place of sanctification where sin is no longer a big deal. I want to grow more and more like Jesus. In fact, that's what I've been predestined to do. And I want the end of my life to be a a time where I brag about Jesus. Not me. I was weak. I was a wicked person that Jesus saved. But I want to make sure that from this day forward, from the day I came to the Lord, that I'm growing in knowing my king, that I become more and more like Jesus, not less and less. God's will for your life is what? If you have a problem, go look in 1 Thessalonians. It's your sanctification. That's God's will for your life. And we want to be able to write a eulogy 
a proper eulogy. I plan on going through some of the Old Testament uh, guys, and I'll, I'll do it as quick as I po- possibly can because I want to get to the eulogy of Paul that he gave, a living eulogy that he gave, and I want to get to that. But I wanted to, to point this out. Hebrews chapter eleven twenty two says, "By faith Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders." concerning his bones. And if you went back to there in Genesis chapter 50, you'll see that Joseph, it's pretty incredible. His brothers were worried about what was going to happen. And he's like, oh no, you know, now he's going to be mad. You know, their dad has died and, and, you know, maybe he's not going to deal with us. He's like, no, you meant for evil. God meant good. And, and, and it's, and it's really awesome. And he said this, these are his last words. He said, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on an oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years. And guys, these are his last words. Moses dies, Deuteronomy chapter 34 tells us that the Lord came to him on his deathbed and told him that his descendants would go into the promised land, even though he was only able to see it. And then Joshua, it says, now Joshua in verse uh, 39, or 34 chapter 9, or chapter 34 verse 9, now Joshua the son of Nun was filled with the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him, and the sons of Israel listened to him, and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. Moses commissioned Joshua at his death. Joshua tells us, not only in verse 1-7, I don't get to get into as deep as I wanted to here. You know, I always, sitting in the pulpit, seeing Joe teach, I'm always like, man, you know, this is awesome, you know, and then we'd talk afterwards, and he'd be like, man, it's really hard to get it all done in time, and then I came up here and was like, oh yeah, it actually is really hard to get anything done in time here, so I totally understand. So I can't get it, uh, get in as in-depth as I wanted to, but Joshua gives this calling out, this Hebrew war cry in Joshua 1 verse 7 uh, about being strong and courageous for the Lord. And, and he gives the same, same word is used, which is uh, hazak. And it's used both at Joshua 1 7 and then later in Joshua 23 6, his farewell address to Israel. And in, in Joshua 1 7, when it tells them to be strong and courageous, this Arak Hazak, you know, to be firm and courageous, it's a, it's a term that's used 11 different times of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart in the book of Exodus. And really what it has to do is strengthening a resolve that has already been made. And so we want to strengthen the resolve. And these are the words that Joshua is using at the end of his life. After using them at the beginning, he says, be very firm or Hazak, be very fortified, then to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses so that you may not turn aside from it to the right or to the left. So we have Joshua once again at the end of his life fortifying them, saying, guys, no, his farewell address to Israel, we need to make sure we're fortified. We need to make sure we're firm. We need to strengthen our resolve in a good way, not in the bad way that Mr. Pharaoh did. But here is the solemn charge that I've been wanting to get to and finally getting to. This is the solemn charge that Paul gives at the end of his life. The last letter that we have that Paul wrote, we have in 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting at verse 1. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in of season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort, and great patience and instruction, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate to themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry." These, this is the solemn charge that Paul is giving to Timothy. And what does he do not only to start off, he says right in the beginning, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. And he tells him to preach the word of God. Preach it in a season, out of season. And then not only does he continue to fortify 
this statement and really show the importance of it by this, the very next verse. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. When Paul was giving his living eulogy, while he was still alive, knowing that death was imminent, he was about to be poured out as a drink offering, he was solemnly charging Timothy to, he was warning him of false doctrine. Think about that. We can't even get pastors to do that before they die. We, a lot of times we can't get them to preach that from the pulpit, to warn of the false doctrine, the very thing that is the criteria for a pastor in, in Titus 1, 5 through 9, when it says they need to not only preach sound doctrine, but refute those who do not. So many people, at least here in America, when it comes to the American church, so many of them are unwilling to call out people. But guess what? Paul, think about this. Paul, while he's addressing his imminent death, while he says, I charge you, I solemnly charge you, Timothy, preach the word of Genesis out of this season, while he charges him and tells him, guess what? There are going to be those who want their ears tickled. They're going to accumulate for themselves. They're going to grab themselves and get false teachers so they can have their own desires. So when Robert Schuler sends out an entire thing asking people, what do you want preached? And he can get that back and he can have his crystal cathedral that I believe is now owned by Catholics. You can have all those numbers and it's just dead. It's all going to be burnt up because it's fake. It's phony because you're accumulating for yourself people who want their ears tickled. And that's exactly what's going on. And this was the message before his death. This was the living eulogy. I'm being poured out as a drink offering, but I know for a fact what will happen when I go. I know what's laid up for me in heaven. But guess what? He also says this. I find this interesting. Make every effort to come to me soon for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone, deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas, interestingly enough, multiple times in the scripture in both Philemon and Colossians, and it, just for dating purposes, I, I think it's important to understand, Colossians and Philemon was probably written at the very end of the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 28, when Paul was imprisoned in Rome. And in both of those letters, it mentions Demas. Colossians 4.14, Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings, and also Demas. Epaphras, in, in Philemon 23-24, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, Jesus greets you as do Mark. Demas, Luke, my fellow workers, right? Multiple times before Acts chapter 28, earlier in the book of Acts, when it was probably written, he was saying good things about Demas. But then at the end of Acts, we see him mentioning Demas. We see him specifically in a book written in Acts 20, 20, in about Acts 28, we see Demas also now being said he loves this present world, which is very different with how, when you read Acts chapter 15 concerning Mark, very different than how Paul mentions Mark. Because in Acts chapter 15, he mentions that Mark was not a good companion. It says this in Acts chapter 15, verses 36 through 40, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Barnabas wanted to take John called Mark along with him also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. Interestingly enough, that's Acts chapter 15. So you have Colossians later. What does it say of Mark? In Colossians chapter four, verse 10, it says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas, Barnabas' cousin, Mark, about whom you've received instruction. If he comes to you, welcome him. 
So you have Demas being, taught well, or being spoken well of in the beginning and not so well in the end. You have Mark literally starting a fight between Paul and Barnabas because he's, he did, Paul doesn't expect him to be a good worker, now later being commending. And I say this because when you're thinking about writing a living eulogy, maybe if you're just writing it in your heart, think about it this way. Which one do you want to be, a Demas or a Mark? If you haven't been walking it, if you haven't been walking in the truth, if you haven't been following Jesus, if you test your faith and realize you're not in the faith, who are you going to be? Are you going to be Demas, who loves this present world, loves the things of this world, is carried away by the deceitfulness of sin? Or do you want to be like Mark? Where, yeah, some bad things were said, and then guess what? Oh, he just got to write the gospel of Mark. He got to be commended by the same person who was fighting to say, I don't want this guy around me. I don't trust him on journeys. Who are we going to be? What would your living eulogy be? What would be the things that you, that you would say to someone? That you want right now, Let's, uh, if you thought in your heart, there's someone right now that doesn't know the Lord, what would you say to them? There's someone right now, and imagine, we don't all get blessed with a deathbed. We don't all get blessed to know when our time is over. What would you say to someone? Someone you, you have in your heart to say, I don't want you to die without knowing exactly where you're going to be. I don't want you to pass away. And I don't want, if there's someone who's been faking the funk, God knows if you've been faking it, if you don't really love him. God knows it. You can make, maybe you, you put on a good sheen. Maybe, maybe you're covering it up pretty well. But God knows it. God knows if you're faking it. Repent and turn to him. Repent and, and be someone who can be trusted of. Be someone that, hey, maybe you did mess up for a while. Maybe you weren't following the Lord. But now turn. There's no reason to wait and say, you know what, I'll clean this up later. I'll clean this up and I'll go later. I'll fix that later. You don't know if you have that. Over 144,000 people die every day, many of which think they have till tomorrow. You may not. Or the person that you love and would love them to know the gospel, would love them to know Jesus Christ, that person may not either. That person may not have tomorrow either. I can tell you that every one of my young friends that passed away, there was one thing I just wished. There's one thing I wanted right after I found out they passed away. I wish I had one more chance to share the gospel. Well, you have it right now. You have it right now with your neighbor. You have it right now with your, your cousin. You have it right now with your brother or sister if they don't know the Lord. And if you don't know the Lord, you have it right now. You have that chance. Don't be that person that somebody has to go and tell these stories about when it was great when you were following the Lord because you stopped doing it at the end of your life. It was awesome. All those stories were great when you were younger and following the Lord but now you don't. Be that person that even though Paul couldn't trust Mark, he did in the end because he proved himself. Be someone who proves yourself to be a workman. It proves yourself rightly dividing the word of truth. Be someone who turns from those things, trusts in the Lord and follows him with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and loves him therein. I wanna pray and uh, thank you guys for coming on a Wednesday night and, and sharing with me.